in this world. You need leads now, and Lead 411 has got your back. What is Lead 411? A fucking great lead provider. Lead 411 has unlimited mobile direct phone numbers, intent data via role changes, jobs, and company intelligence. Critics are calling them sensational. And don't forget their slick Chrome extension that plugs into LinkedIn. This summer, step up to the big leagues and join the most comprehensive sales intelligence solution in the market. Lead 411. Awesome. Well, welcome everybody to a new episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. Uh, Richard Harris here with our friend Scott Lease. And uh, as you know, um, we butchered Scott for his terrible rendition of our sponsorship. One time. One bad, one, one bad rendition. That's it. Just but you, that's, yeah, but that's all it takes. And so our sponsor, Tom Blue over at Lead 411, heard it, and he went out and hired that guy to do that. So that's why you heard this sort of super fancy one. That's probably the most advanced fancy thing we've ever done on this podcast. So very hard to take seriously, by the way. Yes. So, um, so anyway, so we're here today, super excited. We have Katie Ivy, who's the RVP of sales at Demandbase. Um, and we're super excited to talk to her, but also, Katie, tell us how you even got here, because I think it's a fascinating way of how we do things. Yeah, really good story. And thanks for having me, by the way. It's really good to be here. Uh, Scott put it out on Twitter. I think it was maybe four, three, four weeks ago, something like that. Might be longer. The world sort of spins slowly during COVID. Um, but basically asking for you know women, females, and people of color to put up their hand. They want a more diversity on the podcast. So uh, I don't actually know if it was myself that volunteered, if I got nominated, but somehow it was in the string. And a week later, I was booked for the podcast. So excited to be here. Yeah, off we go. We've uh, <clears throat> we've been working hard at trying to amplify voices that maybe don't have the uh, same opportunities as as other people. So we're excited to have you you here. I want to amazing response to that, right? Yeah, I I did. We did like we booked out like forty people in a row, forty women or people of color in a row, and it took up months on our calendar. So now when people are like, "Hey, I'd like to come on to the show," I, I told somebody earlier today. Yeah, we're booked until you know October, and they're like, "What the heck? When did you guys get so you know fancy or whatever?" I love that. I love that. I was glad everybody you know responded and happy to you know take everybody up on it. So I want to ask you a question about your um, headline. I don't know what they call it on LinkedIn. It says ABM Advocate. <laughs> I want to. I want to know why. First of all, tell everybody what that means. Who doesn't know but I want to know why you're so passionate about that that you tagged your headline on LinkedIn ABM advocate what does that mean to you great intro question I don't think I was expecting you to start there but that means it was probably a great place to start um, ABM I work at demand base obviously which is B2B marketing platform we do ABM and it's so funny over the last couple of years ABM's become this super buzzy thrown around there's literally hundreds of companies that are now saying like we do ABM and it's very odd that we've even created like a category and a space for it. Really account based marketing and selling has been around for years. Anyone like ourselves have, that have been doing B2B sales for 10, 15 years, much longer, 
like we're just selling to companies. And so all ABM is, is figuring out what are the companies that you actually want to earn their business and when, when the deal from, and then channeling your sales and marketing efforts towards those companies versus kind of the old school, much more volume velocity, really wide net. Um, so it's funny to me that it's become this very complex, like, oh my gosh, we're hiring teams to try to figure out what's the strategy and overcomplicate the shit out of it. Really, it's, I mean, there's lots of complex things that you can do from an account-based marketing perspective, don't get me wrong, um, but really it's just great B2B marketing. It's being smart with where you spend your dollars, where you spend your time, uh, and probably the most important thing is make sure marketing and sales are focused on the same things, metric the same, driving towards the same goals, which in most B2B orgs, in my experience, tends to be a massive disconnect. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in places before that literally reported different numbers in terms of revenue. How does that happen, right? I have no idea. You know, it's a mystery to this day. We say that exact phrase, how does this happen, right? <laughs> and, and clients of mine have this challenge right now. When, when somebody is, is first learning about ABM, they would say, well, why should I do it this way? I've never done it this way before. What is like the simplest explanation you can give? I'm thinking specifically, not to a big company, you know, demand basis size or other companies that you've been, I'm thinking to like the early stage startups, right? The companies yeah. who are hiring like their first couple reps and first go to market push right now. What's the big advantage yeah. for them to start doing it that way? I honestly think it's probably even more important for smaller companies with really limited resources. The same way that you're gonna go through exercises and figure out what's your total addressable market? What's a great customer look like? Who should we be selling to? Doesn't mean that you can't test and iterate and try some different things, but you certainly want to figure out pretty early in the game, what do we think a great customer is going to be for us and where do we want to focus our efforts? And if you're small and you've got a lean marketing team or your first couple of sales hires, telling them, hey, the world's your oyster and literally any company could use our product. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster in my book. Like you want to give them some direction. Again, it's not that it won't shift and change and iterate over time, but the quicker you can get to a relatively defined, we would call it a target account list if you're in ABM speak, but it literally just means a list of companies we want to sell to, the quicker that you can help a sales rep or a sales org figure out what that looks like, uh, just the more likely they are to be successful. Is, it, is there a couple quick tidbits to like help somebody narrow it down? I, I, I literally have this conversation all the time because my focus is with early stage startups. And I, I was having this conversation yesterday and they're like, well, we could sell to anybody. I'm like, that's not going to work. Okay. We got to narrow the focus. So yeah. you as an expert, in this particular uh, field, what are the couple questions that you know founders should ask themselves, or that early sales leaders should be asking to narrow the focus? So it's not, well, we can sell to any business anywhere on the planet, and it's more like we sell to these type of companies in this ge geographic market at this revenue or or headcount size. How do how do they? Where do you begin to to figure out that focus and really? get the bullseye on the ICP? I think it depends on how early stage you're talking. Most companies that you work with, I would assume, they've got at least a handful of customers or a small set of customers. If you have enough customers and you've been through at least a couple of renewal cycles, that's the first thing I would look at. Who, who's buying the product? Where are we having some success actually selling deals? And then who's renewing and using it a second year or a third year? Or if you're in a month to month, who's sticking with you? Month two, month three, month four. Those types of things should be really early indicators of at least where we're going to land and find some success. And again, it's not that it doesn't iterate over time. 
worked at Marketo for a long time. We started in the SMB and then aggressively worked up market. We've done the opposite of demand base. So you can certainly evolve as your product market fit shifts. But the first thing I would look at is what are the customers that you work with today? For early stage companies, sometimes it's literally just people that your founder might know. And a lot of that early selling happens through relationships. So out of that, you've got to dig a little bit deeper. Are they actually using the product? Are they seeing value in the product? What type of feedback can you get those types of metrics? But then I would use that to define at least phase one. What does that ICP need to look like? It, you, you brought up something really interesting, which was, you know, at one company you went, you know, small to big and demand, demand base, you're going big to small um, in terms of the size of the, the customers. I don't think there's a lot of people who've had that level of experience. Certainly I haven't talked to many, so maybe there's tons of them and I just don't know them. Um, what are some differences you you've learned? Like what are some similarities? Like was the pivot point at the same spot? We reached some level of penetration. So now we can pivot. Um, you know, I'm just curious of your thoughts on having done it both ways now. Yeah, sure. Well, let's be honest, I wasn't the run in the show at either of those places. Um, but I've certainly had some learnings from kind of watching it and being able to orchestrate specific pieces of it. Um, I mean, at Marketo, it was certainly we started to see really early that there was super strong product market fit. Uh, and it was built in such a way, I mean, amazing product guys that build a really solid product that could do things that others in the market couldn't do. So even though the initial go to market was very much built on this inbound high volume, you know, low ACV, it was fairly obvious that in morphing to more of an outbound strategic approach, we could certainly sell into larger companies. I mean, even in the mid-market space, which, which I owned at, at Marketo during my time there, we still morphed from selling the same types of companies, but selling much larger deals as we got smarter with an outbound versus an inbound sales motion. So I think it's just identifying what's working, what's resonating. Again, looking back at those renewal rates, where we being able to drive upsells, our happiest customers, all those types of factors. Um, and when we saw very similar, a lot of the opposite at demand base started very much as a key enterprise leader, lots of big companies using the tech, but very early on recognize, hey, there's some things that big companies are doing that mid-sized companies are absolutely asking for and can benefit from. Uh, we don't sell into the more traditional SMB, so really small companies typically wouldn't leverage our tech, um, but fast growing companies within that mid-market segment absolutely do. This is the part of the show, Katie, and there's at least one every single episode where Richard speaks while he's on mute. It's all right. <laughs> Not you, it's is, is there one? Um, is there one that you would prefer now? Like, you know, if you were mentoring or coaching, I know you've done some with, with First Round Capital and some other places. Um, how do you help a company decide which where, where to start? I think they're both really, really fun, honestly. Um, I just like scale and growth mode, so I don't know that it necessarily matters which direction you're scaling and growing. I definitely do, I love the, and I think we're seeing this across sales holistically, no matter who you sell into, the need to be much more strategic and value-based in our approach, even if it is a higher volume or an SMB, um, we, we just have to differentiate in different ways than we did, I think, 10 years ago. Um, so, I mean, moving down market and it's been a lot about building out emotion, things that are repeatable, figuring out what a great process looks like, where do things typically get broken. So that's super fun. Um, so I think both angles are really fun. To me, it's more about the tech and the culture and probably some of the more intangibles as opposed to size of the company specifically. Got it. So I, I'm, I'm going to shift totally. I saw you went to Kennesaw <laughs> for college, right? Are you from Georgia? I grew up in Chattanooga, so just up the road. Okay. Um, I lived overseas for a couple years before college and then moved back to Georgia to go to school. Okay, cool. I was, I, I'm originally from Georgia, so okay. I'm always curious when, we, when I see that. 
Um, I'd love to go back, like, you know, when you were, you know, even pre-college, high school, you know, early in your life, were you the typical, what we think is the typical competitive person, sports-minded person, not really, like, you know, what were you like then? And then how did you sort of choose the, the career of sales? Yeah, super, super competitive growing up. Um, I was a swimmer. I wasn't a particularly great swimmer, but I swam competitively from a really early age. Um, and I just always loved sports. Um, I don't think I'm naturally very good at them, but always loved them. Um, and just naturally, you put me in any setting and I want to win uh, as a child. So, and, and to this day, absolutely. So yeah, certainly really competitive. I didn't have a ton of exposure to business. I wasn't one of those kids that's out like selling door to door, or mowing lawns or, you know, with the lemonade stands. Didn't really have any idea that I was interested in business or entrepreneurship at an early age, but absolutely the competitive piece. Uh, to the second part of your question, kind of how I landed in sales or the career progression, uh, I, like I mentioned, it was supposed to be a gap year. I was going to go to Australia for six months in between high school and college because I'd graduated early. I ended up working for a nonprofit for almost five years, so took a really long break. Parents, of course, panicked. No one thought I was ever going to go to school, um, but had a lot of really great leadership experience during that season. Uh, it was relief and development primarily, but I was leading teams at like 18, 19, 20, doing fundraising, project management, stuff that young kids don't typically get exposed to. Um, so came back, went to school, thought I would end up in, I'd studied international affairs, thought I would end up back overseas very accidentally landed a job at a company called Meltwater doing very grindy, like full cycle, uh, entry level sales. About six weeks in, I was in love, obsessed, realized I love business. But if you, if you had this degree in international and you wanted to go, you know, live around the world, why did you take a sales job in the first place? I was broke. Did you just need, yeah. You were broke. Okay. Just making sure. I had made it through school with almost no debt, but I also had almost no savings. So um, I was debating between law school or uh, going just a more traditional, like nonprofit type of track. And I didn't know for sure which one I wanted to do. So I didn't want to take out loans until I knew. So the plan was make a little money and then go back to school, which I never did. What was the appeal just again, you know, early in your life? Cause I, I always find these things. What was the appeal to travel and be international and, you know, where did that, where did that adventurous spirit come from? Um, I really don't know. I had never been on an airplane until I was 16. I grew up in super small town, Tennessee. I said Chattanooga, but like literally small town near Chattanooga. If you had met me at 17, I had like the strongest Southern accent you can ever imagine. Many folks in my family still do. Uh, really, really small town. Um, I had never left the country until I went to Australia at 17. And it was just the most incredible experience. I was living with folks from all over the world, spent time all across Southeast Asia, the Pacific Islands. It was the first experience I'd ever had with people that were different than me, really in any capacity. Um, and it was certainly my first real exposure to poverty or to need or feeling like I could actually make a difference in the world around me. So I think that was the initial piece that got me hooked. And I just loved the aspect of being outside of my comfort zone and really unique in different places. And I've kept it up for the most part, even though I didn't go back that path. I'm at 53 countries I've been to. 2020. I was about to ask, you know, we, 2020 is really brag book. Every every millennial I know is, has has a brag book of the number of countries they've been to. But I'm gonna find a way to go to every country before I die. That's I awesome. You that's know, really depending cool. on how much longevity I got, but that's the plan. That, that's really good. Cool. Cool. That sounds like fun. She's got me. She's got me beat. I'm like in the high 30s. Uh, I mean, that's impressive. Like, I, I meet so many folks that, I mean, literally have been to like a couple of vacation spots, but just never made an effort. And I just, there's so much to learn. 
I, never I got a question for you about your leadership experience at 18 or 19 years old. I mean, what were you doing? Like, how, how did you know how to lead? Was it just straight intuition? Or was there somebody kind of guiding you? Or were you actively seeking information and learning? How does one lead at 18? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. I did have a really great a mentor. I didn't think of him as a mentor at the time, but the guy that ran the nonprofit that I was a part of that young um, was, what, 15 years older than me um, from a really interesting background. I certainly learned some from him. Um, he gave me a lot of opportunities and pushed me really early. Most of that was just because I was one of the few people that put up my hand and said, I'll do it. Um, I think that I was willing to take risks and fail maybe earlier than most people are. Um, I don't really know why necessarily uh, in terms of just that like lack of risk aversion that I had. Um, I just felt like I was a little bit of a bull in a china shop and I was willing to give a lot of things a shot pretty early on. Uh, what would I mean, I've say? If we asked your parents, why does Katie have this spirit? Are you from a large family and, and, you know, you're the oldest, the middle, the youngest child, or what would so they I, say about it? I have only one sibling, uh, and I'm the youngest, but I have a special needs sibling that has cerebral palsy. So I've definitely always had a leadership capacity within the family. So potentially that made an impact. I also lost one of my parents uh, when I was 13. So took probably more responsibility for the family at that point, but not really in any of the like, oh, I went out and made money or did anything ultra responsible. Um, those were probably the two factors early on in life that would have shaped that. I, I don't think you needed to earn money. I think you were, your way to earn money was to be supportive and do what you could in the house so that, you know, your, your other parent could, could do that part of it. So hats off to you. And, and, and I don't know if it was your mom or your dad um, for making that work. And, and I'm really sorry for the loss. That's amazing. Although she will also tell you a funny story, which is to your earlier question of like, what my parents would say. My mom has a really funny story of, I think me at like six or seven, she was trying to get me to do something. I don't remember this and I don't remember what I was being asked to do, but I was not in agreement or a fan. And she tried to sit me down and have this very serious conversation about one day I would have a boss. I would have a job and I would have a boss and I would have to do what the boss said. And she said, I sat there and I thought like for a long time. And then I looked at her and said, I'm going to be the boss. <laughs> yes. And that was the end of the conversation. So apparently at an early age, I seem to think that I had the capacity to be the boss. That's that, awesome. is, that is the title of the episode right there. <laughs> at six, I told my mom, I'm going to be the boss. Uh, <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of being the boss, how much harder is it to run sales and customer success than just run sales? Oh, I think much harder. I don't run customer success in my current role. Um, you did. I, I, I'm aware, but I'm looking at your, you know, your, your background. And like when you were at Insight Pool, you ran sales and customer success. And the last couple of roles that you've been, you're running sales. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I always ask this question of people who run both or people who are in CRO roles and running marketing on top of it. Like, is it a factor of two or is it like exponentially harder, like by a factor of five? Right. How much harder do you feel like it, it was? So at that point in my career, it was really, really hard. And there was other factors probably that played into that. A lot of it being the stage of the company and the product that we did or didn't really have. Um, so the customer success team had a ton of responsibility basically to be pseudo managed service providers, even though it was sort of SaaS that we were selling. Um, so it was fun though, because I got to build the process of what should that look like? How do we create some efficiencies? I mean, when I joined super, super small company, we didn't really have a retention plan. We certainly, we'd never closed an upsell at that point. So we built out a whole model of how we could sell both services and SaaS. 
um, and saw a ton of growth with some really big companies, which was super fun. But you definitely have to have great leaders on both sides, or you've got to, if you're going to dig in and focus holistically on one, which for me at Insightful, I focused hardcore on customer success. I had to have some folks on the sales side of the house that I trusted to, you know, whatever, figure out the process, be able to answer questions. Like I couldn't micromanage or control both. Absolutely. There's, I mean, I know you're, I know you're super passionate about women leadership and, and female sales leaders. How big of a, a network have you cultivated for, for yourself of peers, other female heads of sales, VPs of sales? Um, and how has that helped you and benefited you? And how are you kind of paying that forward, if you will, now? Yeah, so to be honest, not a huge network of peers. It's definitely been a focus if I look at last year and this year. Uh, when I joined Demandbase, I halfway moved to New York. So I got an apartment there and was managing most of my team was in Manhattan. So when I looked at the year ahead and setting out some like strategic objectives, personally, professionally, one of the things I wanted to dig into was really cultivating, cultivating that network uh, and digging in, in New York specifically, but broader as well. Definitely made some traction. There's not a, and I know that this is a generalization, it's really tough to find like powerhouse heads of sales. Um, Like I'm a member of the Revenue Collective, which I love and have met some amazing people back when we were allowed to see people face to face and go to dinners and happy hours. I enjoyed all of those events, but literally anytime I met a female, they weren't ever in sales. They were always owning marketing or some other aspect of the revenue function. It was really challenging to find either CROs or heads of sales that were female. Um, so it's definitely still on the agenda. I've met some really great folks within that New York community, but from my perspective, it's still relatively limited. If I look at even like my LinkedIn network, which I'm fairly active, it's very male and it's very white. So I talk about those things a lot. Um, so I think it's an area that I need to lean in and do better for sure. Um, I've definitely cultivated a pretty broad group of folks that have either worked with me or for me. My team at Marketo at one point was all female, uh, not when not the entire time, but at one point there was a almost an entire year that it was all female. Um, So I've got some really badass gals that have worked for me in the past that I would literally, uh, I think would follow me to the moon and back and I would love to work with again. So I've been really purposeful kind of whatever looking down at being able to to mentor and bring some other folks up. Uh, But I'd really like to cultivate a broader network of of peers and certainly folks that are my senior. I don't have that. So is there a plan to go, to go get that? I mean, I've, and the reason I'm going to push a little bit on this is um, I feel like that's a fairly common answer, right? Like, oh, I don't know that many and, you know, I'd love to have that. And not that this is you, but oftentimes I'm left with feeling like somebody's kind of giving up and sort of saying, like, well, you know, I don't know, it'll happen when it happens, hopefully kind of thing. But it's like, I'm much more interested in like, okay, yes, this is a problem here's what we're going to go do about it. Right. And, and where are those, where are those chess pieces that we can push to facilitate that? Right. So like, I mean, I know, I don't know a million female sales leaders, but I know, I know plenty. Right. So it's just like just as simple as folks who have people in their network need to make more introductions. Is there a place like revenue collective that can become like a, you know, micro community for female sales leaders? Like what, what do you think you are going to do to kind of actively improve in that particular area? And then what should some of the rest of us do to make it easier for this to uh, come together? 
I love that. You're, you're making me sign up for tangible takeaways. Um, it's fantastic. So I think Revenue Collective is definitely a really powerful community. Um, and like I said, there are some individuals that I've been able to connect with. I think it comes down to me being more proactive and take like tapping into and reaching out to folks that I want to connect with and build real relationships. Uh, you may know LG that runs the LA chapter of Revenue Collective. Uh, she's a female sales leader, probably a little bit younger than me, um, but very similar stage in her career. She literally pinged me on our Slack channel, said, hey, love your content. Let's chat. We'd love to meet you. Feel like we're kindred spirits. We set up a Zoom call. We've since done a joint podcast together. I did a session with her team of uh, female SDRs earlier this week, like talking through my journey. So there's definitely those types of things that I just need to put up my hand and be more like out there and push a little bit harder. Richard, you're on mute again. No, but I didn't say anything. I didn't try and talk. I was struggling to get off mute, so that doesn't count. I just knew it was going to happen. He could see it coming. So what do you wish you'd had coming up in sales, right? Like, I wish I'd had, you know, more of, you know, there's sort of this, I, I've been hearing it a lot of, you know, you have your personal board of directors, right? You know, um, you know, KD, Kevin Darcy talks a lot about, you know, he's got his business one. He's got a, a someone about being a good family man. He's got a, another African-American male like himself so he can get on and just talk about the issues that of, of what African-American men need, right, and support and, and face. What do you wish you'd had if you could go back 10 or 15 years and say, if I could build a personal board of directors, I wish I'd had these kinds of folks. Yeah, that, I love that question. And one, I think I've been very, very fortunate early in my career. Uh, there was definitely some amazing people around me at Meltwater, that, that first company that I worked for, that definitely provided some solid leadership and mentorship uh, and just good training opportunity and opportunity to travel and some other things that I think gave me early exposure. Um, I wasn't exposed to really any powerhouse female sales leaders early on, um, but there were some really great opportunities to connect with folks that fit that bill. And I was able to have almost think of it as like little micro mentors. I think sometimes we obsess over needing these very structured formal, whether it's a board of directors or mentors that you're going to spend all this time with. When I look back, the most impactful people in my personal journey career-wise have been probably those micro sessions where I've gotten two, three, four meetings or some FaceTime with someone and just learn massive amounts in a really limited amount of time. Um, yeah, in terms of specific people I would have put around myself earlier on, I don't know if I have a concrete answer to that. Well, if maybe, I could, not. Maybe, it's, maybe it's different. Where do you wish you'd had a little bit more support when this type of issue comes up you know, or, you know, advocating for your own career, or, you know, what are those kinds of things like, you know, maybe you didn't need it. Maybe you had them already for you. No, the, the immediate answer that came to mind to answer your first question is I wish I'd had more confidence earlier on, like, and, and all of us say this early on in our career, obviously there's a million things that we're terrible at and maybe one or two things that we're great at at least for myself, I fixated on a lot of the areas where I wasn't strong, the things that I need to improve in. Um, we talked about it a little, but I was a natural at the management and leadership side of the business. It took me quite some time to feel like I was really good at selling. And so I think I just, I spent so much time fixating on what does it take for me to get better in these certain areas. And there was a lot that I brought to the table that I certainly did not allow to shine or really lean into earlier on that I think could have created more opportunities for me sooner. Like what? Like, is there an example? I mean, particularly just coaching and management doesn't come natural to a lot of folks. Like you think of your superstar sellers that just have 
a really hard time being able to look at someone else and dissect strengths and weaknesses or figure out what's their personality type? What makes them tick? How do I tap into long-term ambition versus short-term goals? Like I was naturally really good at that stuff really early on. Uh, Also building culture, creating a group of two, three, five, 15 people that genuinely like each other, hang out together, care about some type of shared goals and create an environment that people thrive and enjoy being in. Like to this day, those are the things that I'm really, really strong at. Um, I've of course learned a lot of other things and certainly gotten much better at sales and learned a lot about process, but still the people management, I mean, even the one-on-one people management is still one of my natural massive strengths that I bring to the table. And I think it was probably five, six, eight years into my career before I even really recognized that. And certainly before I was, you know, willing to advocate for myself or ask for more opportunities leaning on that. Yeah. For if you were going to coach somebody on how to start building a strong culture or rebuilding a culture, right? Because right now we're going through a really unique cultural experience on the sales in the sales world. What kind of things would you suggest to people, particularly It is so hard right now. Um, I feel like this year has been a year of learning for me. Um, Certainly a lot of the things that I'm naturally good at just sort of went by the wayside. Um, Connecting with people on a one-on-one and certainly a group level is a lot harder over Zoom. Um, I think that probably the the thing that we've been talking about within my team and within some of my circles as well of, you know, revenue leaders that are struggling with the same thing is how do we create this sense of psychological safety, openness, the ability to fail, the willingness to share, ask questions. How does that happen virtually? Um, And it almost, there's so much of it that naturally happens in a room that you just take for granted. If even an aspect of your sales process is happening on a floor where you're sitting next to people, you're naturally learning so much. You're poking fun at people when they drop the ball or they get hung up on. You're sharing stories from demos. Hey, I got really stuck at this place. Who's doing this? There's something that feels a lot more I don't know if vulnerable is the right way to uh, phrase it, but when you reach out on Slack or speak up in a team meeting on Zoom, there's something that feels a little bit scarier about that than just when it's naturally happening in this like chit chat and dialogue. Even when you think of a team meeting that's happening once or twice a week, when you're all sitting around the same conference table, there's so much of this chit chat that just happens and you're learning from each other and you're creating this place where you know, hey, other people are struggling with some of the same things. Even the best sellers don't have all this figured out. Like there's this sense of safety that happens that creates so much natural momentum and learning. And then it also creates an openness where folks tend to, maybe they're not all best friends, but they at least genuinely care about the success of other people. Um, And I haven't cracked the code on figuring out how to do that virtually. Um, I'm, you know, that's one thing, Scott, to your earlier point, I have been really proactive with asking a lot of questions uh, and trying to tap into my network on that because I don't feel like I've figured it out yet. yeah, so I don't think I have a really good answer. So you, you mentioned that you know it's a hard time and everybody's struggling. What uh, if if you're open to talking about it? What is your biggest failure during COVID right now as a sales leader? Yeah. Probably the thing that comes to mind is early on, I went so hardcore into like micromanagement mode because I felt like my team needed to constantly be connected and plugged in. Um, And we had a few folks that were remote before COVID, but most of us were physically in the same office. Um, So it was overscheduling was definitely a challenge earlier on. Uh, At one point, we tried daily standups and then it was these every other day huddles, more training. So it was a lot of extra Zoom time without getting clear feedback from people on what they want and what they need. That's probably the- I'm actually really glad that this is like the specific thing that you're focused on because um, it's not just you, like 
so many companies that I know and so many sales leaders skewed immediately that particular direction. And I think some of it comes from like an immediate sense of the loss of control mm. and like, Oh gosh, I gotta, I gotta keep the control that I had and keep everything, you know, kind of status quo and whatnot. And, you know, everybody like you learned, Oh boy, that's not exactly the right way to, to do it. I can't have everybody on. I don't need to have, you know, a, death by meeting calendar all of a sudden right now. I've got to give myself and my team room to breathe and, and space to operate and stuff like that. So do you think, it, but Scott, and I'll ask both of you, cause I, I haven't run a team as in, you know, you guys are both closer to that. Do you think it's really that I need to have control or was it that I'm afraid to try and trust my people will actually get the job done? It's the same thing. It's the same thing to me. It's you exactly the same thing. Oh yeah. Exactly the same thing. Like, if you're, if you're in the office, right, and, and I'm there, I feel like I have a sense of control. Like I can control this particular room. I know what my people are doing or not doing. I can see if somebody's down and needs to pick me up. I can see if somebody's celebrating too much and needs to come back to reality. I'm controlling the room. Whether or not everybody wants to admit it, like I'm feeling a little bit like a puppet master, right? Once everybody is gone out of the room, and I don't exactly know what they're, they're doing, it's harder to trust that they're gonna go do what they need to do. And it, I, I feel as a leader a sense of loss immediately, like this shit is out of my hands now and my head is gonna be in the guillotine no matter what, right? And I, I think that that, Katie could correct me if she disagrees with me, but that, that's, that's how I would have felt and, and that's how many sales leaders I've talked to felt. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's not that I disagree. I think I just see one piece of it through a slightly different lens. The trust factor, I think is super important. And honestly, I felt like with, in, there's two aspects of trust. There's one like trusting your people to get their shit done. They know how to do the job, like not needing to micromanage the metrics, the meetings, the how they're using Salesforce, those sort of things. I felt like going into COVID, we had a lot of that trust. So it wasn't this sense of like, I don't really know if they're working or I'm not sure if they know how to do this on their own. Cause there was a lot of that kind of just positive layer of trust. But it's got to your point in terms of the lack of ability to influence going back to my point of like, I know how to create positivity around me. I know how to get people excited about a vision or focused on something, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal that they're working towards. I know how to do that in person. And a lot of that's just intuition. I read the room. Like I see people, who's making eye contact, who's not like I observe so much of that. So it was almost this selfishness of like, I don't know how to do that. So I'm going to put a lot more pressure on my people to somehow give me access while I figure it out. So we're probably saying, yeah, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your picker for lack of a better word, because like every single place that you've gone to me, you've either turned it into gold or it was already gold plated when it, when you got there. And, and so many people struggle with going to the right organization, right? Your, your resume is like Meltwater, Salesforce, Marketo, Demandbase. Candidly, the only company I've never heard of is Insight Pool. And that could be a huge success for all I know. I just have never heard of it. Um, and I get asked this question all the time by people looking for jobs right now. And they're like, how do I know what company is the right company for me? So I want to know, like, does, that, does the company matter? Or does Katie just show up and touch everything and turn it into gold? Or are you just only going to places that are already gold plated and you really know how to pick them? 
Um, I don't know that it's either of those answers. I think part of it comes down to luck, let's be honest. Um, I am very aware of what I'm good at at this stage of my career. I didn't know this earlier on, but I'm really good at MarTech. I'm great at selling into marketing and I love every aspect of the revenue funnel. I'd love to be a CRO one day. I love marketing and sales and customer success. And so if you threw me some killer offer to sell something selling into HR, I don't care how large the total addressable market is or how quick the company's growing. Like that's not my sweet spot. I'm not good at teaching people to do that or building out that process. I don't want to go sell into FinServe. Like that's not my thing. So like marketing, MarTech and then revenue, like that is certainly would play a huge influence when you, my picker as you called it. But honestly, like if you look at what's happened in, from a revenue perspective, like I joined Pardot because I lived in Atlanta at the time and they by far had the best sales culture that existed and there was the most momentum of any company in Atlanta. So it was a great decision. I joined before they were part of Salesforce, but they had just been acquired by Exact Target. But at that stage, however many years ago that was, if you ask any salesperson in Atlanta, what's the dream company? It's Pardot. And I took a big step back to go there. I'd been running really big teams and I went there as an IC because I wanted to learn a sales process that was more structured, more robust, and I wanted to learn something new and then move back into management. I just happened to get lucky that they got bought by Salesforce. I stayed at Salesforce for a bit, learned a ton there. During, during that season is when I realized like, oh, marketing and sales, like that's my thing. I want to be in that type of tech. Insight pool, I followed for friends, learned a ton. It was probably the best decision of my career because I learned the most. Um, and then Marketo was because I had a really close network of folks that were already there and they pulled me there really proactively. So I would say a lot of it comes down to luck for me. Well, I, mean, oh, I mean, we need to go to Vegas when she goes to Vegas, Richard. Yeah, well, Scott, you don't like Vegas. Um, I like it. But I, I'll like it if I go there with Katie and win some money because she's so lucky. <laughs> um, and I would say this, Scott, I think you have a good internal dialogue, too, about that stuff. Well, um, the one thing, what, and I yeah, the, the that. one thing that I resonate with that, that Katie said in particular is, like, she knows herself, right? And being yes, really yes. self-aware is is super critical. I think I think I've been pretty good in terms of putting myself in a position that I know will be a, a strength for me already. So I, yeah, you talk about that a lot. You're the zero to twenty-five. Like you, that, you're the guy that you know it inside and out. You've done it repeatedly. Yeah, and so I, I so like that's my zone, right? And so I, I feel super confident there. In the same way that you're like Martech is my jam. Like put me there. Right. So, and then, and then, you know, the confidence that comes from that and the repetition and familiarity with everything, it, the game kind of slows down a little bit and just gets a little bit easier. You know, I, I, I think. Yeah, for sure. So, um, go ahead, Richard. Yeah. So, you know, I want to come back to understanding some more experiences of yours that that didn't work out right because i don't believe in luck like i i truly believe in you know you're prepared based on previous experience and even if you don't have previous experience you've done something to study for it right so i'm curious what were some of the bigger lessons that didn't work out for you uh, that you were able to carry forward to help you learn how to make uh good decisions so during my time at meltwater so that first company 
I did not get, there was two different promotions I wanted like hardcore and went really hard for that did, I didn't get. And that was primarily the driver of why I transitioned out. I felt overlooked from a management perspective. And I realized in hindsight, I had done a really poor job of selling up. I'm, I'm very good at or managing up. I'm very good at managing down and those around me. Um, but I typically don't have a ton of patience for folks outside of my immediate purview, uh, which means I did a really poor job of that, which I think is partly why certain things didn't fall into place. Um, so I learned a lot about managing up there and just kind of broadening the network. I so talked to is, a lot of inter- So what does managing up mean? Like give someone three, you know, if someone said, Hey Katie, I heard you talk about, you know, you got good at managing up. Are there two things you could encourage me to understand when you say that phrase? First of all, I'm still working on it. So I don't know if I would say I've gotten good at it yet. Um, but it's certainly like learning about the people that work either on your level outside of your team and then certainly folks above your boss. So if you're not reporting directly into the CEO, then there's other layers of folks that need to think that you're really good at what you do, or at least that you add some unique value. So you've got to figure out who they are the same way that you would people that report into you. What makes them tick? What are their long-term goals? Why are they doing this all day, every day? What are they good at? Maybe what are they not good at? So you could add some value or somehow contribute in certain areas that aren't part of your immediate job description or your day-to-day. So when I think of managing up, it's really about thinking outside of, okay, I'm, I'm graded as a sales leader. I've got a number. It's very clear. I need to forecast accurately. I need to hit the number. Outside of that, what else can I do to drive the company forward? increase evaluation, improve retention rates, whatever it is, but how can I have an influence broader than just my immediate responsibility? So, so do you like go up to, you know, oh, you're the, you know, SVP of IT, you know, tell me about your job. Like, like how do you, and maybe you have to be more strategic. Hey, if I'm in sales, I should talk to marketing and I, you know, that kind of stuff, but you know, they don't know you, you don't know them yet. Hey, can we go grab coffee? I'd like to learn about you. Like, is it that simple? Uh, I mean, sometimes it can be that simple. Like some of it comes down to the, there are certain things that touch every role. So in your, you know, SVP of IT example, maybe that's not a good one, but we think of product or engineering. Yeah, I we hired a new head of engineering at Demandbase. You better believe I reached out because I want to have some access to that guy. He's going to help build and spearhead a product that my reps sell. And that's going to impact what the next one to two years look like from a sales trajectory. So I want to have some element of relationship where if it, you know, one day something big breaks and I really need somebody in engineering, like I'm going to know that he's got my back. I don't think you got to be friends with everybody, but you certainly have to have a wider net than just, I don't know who said it earlier, staying in your lane and literally like just your one line of people. Those, those lateral relationships on the executive level are super important, whether it's yeah. the head of engineering that you mentioned or head of product or obvious ones, marketing, CS, stuff like that. But I don't think in those relationships and the importance of them get talked about enough, you know, yeah. maybe the marketing and CS and sales ones maybe, but certainly not engine and product along with uh, I think even marketing and sales. Like I talked to somebody about this yesterday. Like we think we've kind of figured out like marketing sales alignment or made improvements, which I'm sure we've made improvements, but there's so many gaps in that funnel. And a lot of it does come down to human re- relationships. Like you've got to build some level of report and trust with the folks that run marketing or vice versa, the folks that run sales. Yeah. Otherwise you're in a, you're in a world of pain, a little bickering banter back and forth. Right. Or you're reporting different numbers to your earlier point. Or, or that, or that, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we need to uh, kind of wrap it up here, but how can we be helpful to you? Is there anything that we can do to, you know, support you or any questions that you have for us? 
in terms of support me, I'm early stages of trying to build a brand on LinkedIn. So yeah, if you see my stuff, interact, feel free to share. Can, if you know some powerhouse female sales leaders, I'm up for meeting and networking. So always there appreciate connections there. That's a good, that's a good one. That's an area that, that I feel confident that I can, I can be of service right there. Um, on a question. Oh, sorry, Richard. No, I was just to say the same thing. I can, I can easily help on there. Amazing. Love that. Um, question. This is probably relevant for both of you. You talk to so many sales leaders, salespeople love to get your thoughts on what types of trends are you seeing? Maybe one thing super negative or dangerous that you're seeing from a sales trend perspective and maybe something really positive you're seeing in the market. If anything comes to mind. Something really positive that, I, that I'm seeing is just the um, community of sales, I think. I, 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 it is like, I can't remember who said it, but somebody has talked about how like COVID has sped up the technology like 20 years or something like that and how we're working and, and behaving as a culture and companies and everything. But like the way that sales and marketing and revenue community in general like has come together and supported each other through all this is light years better than it was in 2019, in, in, yeah. in my opinion. And better Richard, than February, in my opinion. There you go. And Richard and I were talking about this not too long ago. That like when we were in San Francisco in uh, like 2005 or something like that, VP of sales like didn't talk to each other. Like I'm not sharing trade secrets with Katie. Hell no, right? Now in 2020, like Katie, you got a question? Fire it over. I'll give you. I'll give you my whole playbook. I'll give yeah. you everything. Right? We're so much more open sourced, and and that community is so much stronger. Like that to me is by far the biggest trend that I'm seeing on the on the positive side of everything. So um, that's awesome. You know, Richard, you want to handle the downside? Yeah. I'll well, I'll, I'll throw a couple more positive trends. One, I think the SDR function is getting a lot more respect um, because of it. And when the hiring turns back on, it's my opinion that SDRs are going to be the first hired, not salespeople, right? You need more because they're, let's face it, we're, we're earlier in our careers. It, there's a cost associated with that. And I want more appointments before I want more expensive salespeople. So I think that's going to be a really unique thing. Um, I think, and also because the tools exist to support that role in the way that they do now um, is really, really important. I also think, um, I think people are going to be much stronger on mental health and they're yeah. going to realize these family values, right? Like, you know, to some extent, you know, I'm, I'm kind of ready to get back on the road, but I've also had way, way, way more time with my boys, um, even though I already worked from home. Um, I've had great time with my wife and my family, and I think that value is going to be there. I, my concern, my negative around that is that when we get back to going to the offices, people are going to be so grateful to go that they're going to start working late again, just so early, right? You're going to be like, oh my God, I'm just so glad to be here and I can be with everybody and honey, I'm going to go do a happy hour with every, you know, and, and we want us to do those things. And so I'm hoping we don't shift too far, too quick back to the workaholic life. So, I don't know, Richard, I'm ready to shift to permanent residence in Costa Rica and we can just run like seven, yeah, but eight. But we're not normal, Scott. We're not normal, right? So we, we can do our job from anywhere. 
literally. Have you seen that Barbados is like selling these really cheap 12 month pieces for I all of us this. I told him that, and there's no reason we can't do online learning anywhere. It's a true story. He, he has texted me about it at least two or three times, I think. So. I have a friend in the process of relocating him and his five folks on his team. So, wow. it's happening. Okay. Wow. Is he hiring? I might come out. Of, I might. I might come out of my. Uh, you know, come out of retirement. Role. I mean, cost of living is pretty low in Barbados. You could probably swing it. There you go. Well, thanks so uh, much for uh, spending some time with us, Kate. This was super insightful and a lot of fun, and it's been great getting to know you uh, a little bit better. And I will follow through and introduce you to uh, a couple of your peers, email uh, through sales. So, you can thank you. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Right. Thanks, Katie. Okay. Really been fun. Good talking to you. Thank you. Bye, guys.